Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Jamil, and uh, I'll be introducing today's event. Uh, the title and subject of today's uh, uh, webinar hosted by author and activist Miko Pellet is the targeted campaign to topple Jeremy Corbyn. I will also be facilitating the Q&A portion after the panel's discussion finishes up. So a little bit of background. Uh, in September 2018, the UK Labour Party adopted a, a controversial guideline on anti-Semitism issued by the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. This definition folds criticism of Israel's treatment of Palestinians into the actual definition. So this establish, establishes potentially a powerful apparatus of censorship, which would punish and silence Palestinian rights advocates within the party. So pro-Israel groups, along with UK's uh, neoliberal establishment, uh, you really worked tirelessly to, to tarnish the character of Jeremy Corbyn, of uh, Chris Williamson, uh, Tony Greenstein, and, and several other members of labor. And, and this sophisticated disinformation and smear campaign uh, you know, culminated in Corbyn's recent uh, and shocking ousting from UK labor just, what, uh, you know, a week and a half ago or so. So today we are really fortunate to have an excellent panel with us um, to not only analyze this historical event in UK politics, but also to really understand the forces responsible for it, in addition to what might lie ahead for UK labor under this very new dangerous standard. It should be said that we, we also have a panel with us today who have some, uh, let's call it lived experience being in, in the crosshairs of these relentless smear campaigns. So on today's panel, we are fortunate enough to have Chris Williamson, a second time guest with us, former labor MP for Derby North, city, count, city council leader and activist. We also have Asa Wynn Stanley, uh, journalist, associate editor at the Electronic Intifada, also second time Miko Pellet alum. And uh, new to the Miko Pellet webinar world, we have Tony Greenstein, activist, founding member of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and Jews for Boycotting Israeli Goods, and author of A History of Fighting Fascism in Brighton. So welcome to each of you, and, and thank you so much for your time and for your insights today. Uh, Miko is going to be leading the discussion, but before I hand it over, I want to let the audience know that we are live streaming this to Miko's Facebook page. Um, so if you want to share it with people who didn't register ahead of time, you can let them know to head over to facebook.com slash Miko official. And they'll be able to watch the live stream from there. We also make each of these webinars available to rewatch along with, um, you know, further reading and citations mentioned by the panel at mikopella.com. So just give us, a, a, you know, 24 hours or so on that. And we will be discussing, we'll have the discussion for roughly 60 minutes and then enter into the Q&A. So um, at any point during the webinar, you have a burning question, hit the Q&A uh, button on the Zoom toolbar at the bottom of your screen, submit your question and we will do our best to try and get to everybody's question. And I believe we are ready to start here. So I'm gonna hand it over to Miko. Thank you, Jamil. <clears throat> and uh, thank you everybody that's uh, all the participants. I see the numbers are growing very rapidly. Uh, Chris, Asa and Tony, thank you so much uh, for your valuable time and for your willingness to uh, participate in this. Uh, like Jamil said, you've all been You've all experienced this, uh, the, the, the accusations of anti-Semitism and, 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 and what has been going on within the Labour Party. And so I think your input here is, is invaluable. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that um, 
the ousting or, you know, uh, what seems like the ousting of Jeremy Corbyn from uh, Labour Party, UK Labour Party, uh, was, was planned in advance and meticulously planned. Um, and we could see over the last three, four years how the, 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 the ring around him, the people who supported him, the people who were fighting with him against racism and for, and for um, social justice and progressive values uh, were taken down bit by bit up to the point where he was really left alone and, uh, and, and now he himself has been, has been taken down. And um, it seems that uh, he made, uh, even though he, there's, there's no question that he's not a racist, there's no question that neither he or any of you, of course, are anti-Semitic in any way, shape or form, there was a big strategic mistake in the way he handled this and the way the Labour Party perhaps handled this, uh, the accusations of anti-Semitism. And it could go back, I think, um, to the uh, big mistake of accepting this new definition, the IHRA, what's called the IHRA Working Definition of Anti-Semitism, which basically shields Israel from criticism and binds all the organizations that have accepted it, whether they're governmental or non-governmental organizations, that have um, accepted and adopted this definition. It binds them in a way that now they cannot say anything about Israel, cannot criticize Israel without being accused. Uh, as being anti-Semitic. So it's, it's, it's a very uh, well thought out uh, shield, very well thought out strategy. Um, but I'd like to start by going around um, and, and just maybe briefly, you guys can each tell the story of your own experience within the Labour Party in this relation. And uh, perhaps Tony, we'll start with you. Uh, what, 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 was your, what was your experience in this regard? Well, I'm fairly unique in that 20 years ago, uh, 1992, I was suspended from the Labour Party, not for anti-Semitism, I hasten to add, but uh, part of the kind of uh, anti-poll tax campaigners and general left-wing troublemakers by joining Neil Kinnock witch hunt. So I was suspended for just one year and I didn't rejoin. Uh, and then I rejoined, it was uh, shortly after Jeremy was elected. Uh, about October 2015 and then out of the blue in March uh, 2016 I received a letter from John Stolliday of the compliance unit telling me I had been suspended for comments I was alleged to have made. Now they gave me no clue as to what those comments were. I only discovered later what they were. It was things like I compared Israel's uh, law return and its marriage laws uh, to Nazi Germany and that was of course held to be anti-Semitic until I pointed out to my investigator that Hannah Arendt who was a refugee from Nazi Germany had made just such comments in her book Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, the banality of evil so I mean that was for me was the beginning uh, but actually the anti-Semitism campaign had been going on even before Corbyn was elected so this was a carefully thought out strategy uh, by people uh, whose identity uh, we can speculate about. So, I mean, that was my experience at the very beginning anyway. And, and I think, you know, you were one of about half a million people who joined the Labour Party when Jeremy Corbyn became leader. So I'm not sure it was that high, but it was a considerable number. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so this was this was the, his, his leadership, his, his, uh, his leadership in the Labour Party was it was a great promise really and a lot of people decided to join Absolutely, yes yes I mean. and, 
um, yes, it's infused uh, hundreds of thousands, millions even, uh, yeah. with the potential promise of change. Yeah. Uh, and the tragedy is that Corbyn never, ever understood the nature of the attack on him. From the yeah. very start, he sought to appease his enemies. Yeah. And you know, uh, when it comes to Zionists, you can't appease them uh, because they know no reason. Yes, and sadly, we were learning this lesson too late. It would be nice if we all sat here as this was happening earlier on, and perhaps, perhaps some of you actually uh, did, uh, and and warned that this is this is what's happening. Asa, let your your story is is a little bit different. Yeah, I didn't join the Labour Party initially because in twenty fifteen I didn't join, despite you know I could see that Corbyn was something different from the awfulness of the Labour Party, basically. I mean, to me, uh, I, I started becoming an activist and a campaigner in uh, 2001, really, after 9-11. And so to me, the Labour Party was the war party, basically. Um, so, and, and then there was always sort of one or two MPs who uh, were good. <laughs> essentially and Corbyn was one of them who would who'd go to the demonstrations and so forth um anti-war demonstrations um and uh it was um it, it, so when he became the leader um it, it was a massive change um, but I still didn't join and it was because I knew something like this would happen I don't think I foresaw like the the extent to which it became a real kind of national uh, crisis, manufactured crisis. Um, but, you know, I knew I, I would probably be purged at some point if I joined the Labour Party, so I didn't. Um, but I didn't join until um, 2016 when there was the coup, uh, when the Labour, when I, th I believe it was three quarters of Labour MPs voted to um, no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so uh, I, uh, you know, I was basically persuaded by others to join, um, to kind of to just resist the coup, basically. Um, so I, I joined from. 2015, uh, 2016, um, and I wasn't really vocal about it. It was just my own sort of private, you know, resistance, I suppose. Um, I, you know, gave, I, I did a little bit of campaigning in the 2017 election, but um, not very much, you know, I'm more of a you know, writer than an activist these days. And, um, I was eventually pushed out. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was suspended and, um, when were you suspended? Uh, in, I think February, 2019. And then I was, uh, the art, I, I'll put an article, I'll put articles in, in the chat, but essentially I was like a lot of others, I was suspended for saying factually accurate things <laughs> about pro-Israel groups in in the Labour Party, um, and then um, eventually I saw no 
choice. I saw that it was sort of the process was being rigged. And as, as it was against, your, and it against they, Tony. Didn't they reject your um, request to uh, cover the Labour Party conference last year? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So while I was still suspended, um, they, you know, I applied in the normal way to cover uh, for a press pass for a Labour Party conference. And um, it was first approved. And then it, I didn't actually get the pass, but I got the approval in the email. So it was saying that the pass was about to come. Um, and then at somebody at some point made a political decision to um, roll that approval back. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for that. And then, uh, and Chris, you, you've, you, I mean, you, when the first time I met you in 2017, like I said earlier, I don't know if this was on your mind, but the people that introduced me to you and the people in the audience as you were speaking were whispering to me that the, the hope is and the, the, the expectation is that uh, you will become deputy, deputy leader. Clearly, uh, your position in the party was an important one, particularly in the context of a Jeremy Corbyn type of Labour Party. Um, and then you were targeted and you fought it and you targeted it and you really fought it and you proved that the accusations against you were, were, were false. Um, and yet here we are. So can you talk a little bit about your story, but also what in the world happened here? How did this, how were they able to really bring down, you know, someone like yourself who was, who was really a pillar within the, you were not just an activist from the outside who joined, you were part of the party. Um, in this campaign to bring down Jeremy Corbyn and to bring down this the progressive part of the party. Yeah, thanks, uh, Mika. Thanks for inviting us on again. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been a member of the Labour Party, had been for 44 years. I've devoted my life to the party as a dedicated activist, was active in every election from the mid-1970s uh, and active in between elections as well. And one of the things I was always trying to do is encourage people to join the Labour Party to make it a more progressive, a more socialist organised uh, 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 institution, as it were. And, and I felt that, you know, if we could get more people on side like me who shared my worldview, shared the worldview of people like Jeremy Corbyn, that we would be in a much better place to be able to shape the agenda going forward. I never saw myself when I first joined the party as being a, an elected official, a, a councillor or indeed a, a member of of parliament but you know life has a funny way of sort of twisting and turning and ultimately I did find myself uh, with the privilege of, of, elect, of being elected to represent my, my home town but I I mean you mentioned uh, about you know if we'd have had been having this conversation you know perhaps a while ago maybe we could have avoided it people like myself were warning about what was happening I'd said repeatedly that look that the chase they're after me but I'm merely collateral damage you know they've already taken out people like Ken Livingston and Jackie Walker, etc. Ultimately, they're after Jeremy Corbyn because they want to smash this socialist project, this project which actually is committed to an ethical foreign policy, a foreign policy which would have put peace and disarmament as a top priority and obviously solidarity with the Palestinian people and holding the Israeli regime's feet to the fire. 
So I was targeted, you're absolutely right, from the uh, outset, really, of being uh, elected uh, to, uh, re-elected to Parliament. I was a member of Parliament from 2010 to 2015 and lost my seat, got re-elected in 2017. But when Jeremy put his name on the ballot paper, I immediately got behind him. And really, from that point in time, I was uh, targeted. Obviously, it's a lower level, but was nevertheless targeted all the same. And when I came back, was re-elected in 2017, I gave an interview to The Guardian quite an extended interview and uh, one of the points I was making is that the, the accusations against Jeremy Corbyn were um, were uh, essentially bullshit I think was the term I uh, used uh, and uh, were just smears and I specifically cited a number of different accusations which was being targeted at uh, which would be he was being targeted with things like uh, he was an IRA sympathizer or he supported despotic regimes around the world that he was sexist, all these absurd uh, remarks. And uh, of course, this thing that was getting a little bit of traction that he was an anti-Semite. So I was kind of targeted, but what I therefore felt I needed to do was to really get behind a democratization agenda in the party. And that, and that made me, uh, as we were, doubly targeted because the members of parliament didn't want to be subject to any democratic accountability of the membership. And the point I was making both to the socialist campaign group and to Jeremy and his, and his uh, team of advisors, is that we, we have to win this civil war inside the Labour Party, because if we get elected with the current parliamentary Labour Party, which are out of control, I mean, you go to the, you used to go to the parliamentary Labour Party meetings, they would heckle Jeremy Corbyn, they would absolutely howl me down, it wasn't just heckles, they would absolutely howl me down if ever I spoke, even when I was talking about urging people to come together and find common cause, that there's more that unites us and divides us, I was absolutely incredibly shouted out <laughs> having the temerity to say such a thing this was just two days before i was uh, actually uh, suspended and um, they made it their business to uh, uh, target me with these absurd uh, invented uh, smears and where we went wrong was well one in not actually the leadership not confronting this but where we where we particularly went wrong i think as a, as a the leadership if you like of the movement the socialist campaign group you would like to think are of MPs that is you would like to think are or they sort of portray themselves as leadership of the movement would have actually shown some solidarity with uh, comrades who were being thrown under the bus with these invented accusations I mean Tony Greenstein was was I think one of the first victims of the witch hunt the son of a rabbi whose father fought the Oswald Mosley's fascists at the Battle of Cable Street in 1936 Ken Livingston who's probably done more than anybody in my opinion to fight the cause of, of anti-racism. He got he earned the sobriquet as a loony lefty in the 1980s for his role in the as leader of the GLC, the Greater London Council, in actually putting this issue you know, center stage. He worked, believe it or not, with the Board of Deputies in terms of what could the GLC do, what could he do as the uh, mayor of London when he subsequently came back in that role to deal with uh, uh, bigotry and, and you know, anti-Semitism. Uh, so his record is unimpeachable. They didn't support him. They didn't support Ken. They didn't support Tony. They didn't support Jackie, a black Jewish woman who was the vice chair of Momentum. They said nothing. I was literally the only one, Miko, the only MP. I'm not saying this to blow my own trumpet or anything, but I was the only MP prepared to speak out and stand up for people who were being falsely accused. I mean, to me, it just was, in my opinion, as a socialist, solidarity should be you know, a cornerstone of your belief system. And if you fail to show solidarity to people who are being 
thrown under the bus on an industrial scale. I mean, what, what are you doing? Why are you, as, why are you claiming to be a socialist MP if you're not prepared to speak out? I mean, you know, it just, to me, uh, was an obvious and, and, and common sense thing and, and, uh, and an obligation really on me to, to speak out. Even though people were urging me not to, people were saying, you know, keep your distance from, from Jackie Walker. I was even advised ahead of the 2017 election to distance myself from Jeremy Corbyn because I was told by people who were sympathetic who had a catastrophic idea about you know political strategy they they advised me to keep your distance from Jeremy Corbyn because the most important thing is that we get you elected that we can regroup Jeremy needs supporters in the house but you know he's politically toxic and I said I'm not prepared to do that for two reasons one it's a dishonorable thing to do and secondly I disagree with you that the uh, that the agenda is toxic in any way, shape or form. I think this is an electorally attractive proposition. And so I issued a press release, uh, my team issued a press release saying that I am the most Corbyn friendly candidate standing anywhere in the country in the most marginal seat in England. And obviously that whetted the appetite of the uh, corporate media. And we had, you know, we got descended on by a, a, a number of uh, the media hacks who were writing articles in a very sarcastic tone, suggesting that, oh, this guy who's, you know, turbocharged Corbyn art is going to fall flat on his face because, you know, the whole Corbyn project is electorally disastrous. And we secured the biggest increase in vote share since 1945. I won my seat uh, comfortably uh, in that uh, election. And the only reason, in my opinion, we didn't actually secure an outright majority was that we were being sabotaged from the inside. I mean, this has been now a matter of public record with the leaked report, but I was fighting the most marginal seat in England, as I say, Miko, and we got no support whatsoever from our headquarters, from, from head office. So that was part of the problem. And I think it was um, a failure, a, a catastrophic failure to, uh, you know, recognise what our you know, political enemies were, were doing and a, um, uh, a lack of um, any real kind of uh, gumption, I, guess, I suppose, to uh, speak up for what you kind of believed in. And... Um, they felt that their strategy of, of appeasement and, uh, and um, capitulation would be the way to deal with this. Every time, it's almost they never learned from the light of experience. Every time they would say, well, just adopt the IHRA, for example, and that will, that will draw a line under it. Or, you know, just let, let, look, let's, just, let's just, you know, throw Ken to the wolves and, and that will draw a line under it, you know. Jeremy, just go and apologise to the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council. You go and prostrate yourself before this, this bunch of Zionists and that'll draw a line under it, you know. Let Chris Williamson get uh, suspended, you know. Don't speak out on it because that will draw a line under it. I'm just reminded, I've got to say, of Pastor Niemöller's poem, First They Came, Nico, you know. First they came for the communists and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew, and then they came for me and there's nobody left. Well, isn't that what's happening now? You know, yeah. Jeremy, in my opinion, I love the guy, but I just think he listened to the wrong advice. If he'd have stood his ground, if he'd spoken up for his reputation, spoken up for the party's reputation, spoken up for comrades like Ken Livingston, Jackie Walker, Tony Greenstein, Mark Wadsworth and others, we wouldn't be in this situation. And his, his advisors have a hell of a lot to answer for because we had a moment in history where we could have we could have elected a, a socialist government that was committed to a ethical, a genuine ethical foreign policy, a foreign policy that would have seen the UK 
spreading peace and disarmament around the world. We even had a minister for peace and dis a shadow minister for peace and disarmament. Imagine that the UK, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, uh, promoting peace and disarmament rather than you know arms sales and, and wars, which is what we we do at the moment. Which is and precisely they squandered that opportunity. Squandered yeah. it. I mean, it's a betrayal and it's a disgrace. And the, these people should hang their heads in shame for the for the the abject in which they they sort of advised Jeremy to deal with this clearly politically motivated smear campaign. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the risk. I mean, that was exactly the, what, what they saw and what they were afraid of. A, a progressive prime minister with a progressive backing, uh, with an agenda that talks about peace and, you know, peace and social justice and so on. That's precisely what they're afraid of because Zionism is on the, on the opposite side of all of these issues. I mean, it's, it's racist, it's violent, it promotes violence, it promotes war. And of course, the, sale, the, the state of Israel peddles weapons to all the darkest regimes. So, I mean, that's precisely what they saw as a threat. And that's precisely why they came after you, even though, and then when I say you, I mean you and Ken Livingston and Tony and the others, um, because that's precisely what they were, uh, what they were afraid of. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the IHRA, um, and uh, Asa, you've got that poster behind you. It says, oppose the IHRA. Can you talk a little bit about the IHRA, what it is, and how it came to be accepted or adopted by the Labour Party? Do you, do you... Yeah, I could talk a, a little bit about it, but just uh, first of all, to just second what Chris said about him being the only MP. Yeah, I think I think this is a really vital point because he was uh, Chris was it's true Chris was the I mean I followed this this story um, you know for five and a half years now and it's still going on um, and there were many people who saw from the beginning how you know just tragically wrong this whole um campaign was and how uh how ridiculous it was to say that jeremy corbyn was anti-semitic you know and how dangerous it was to just let it be said um without any kind of pushback um but no mps not even jeremy corbyn said anything along those lines that it was a smear except for chris and that's why they they gunned for him straight away you know um the 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 israel lobby groups they went straight for him. He was he was the you know public enemy number one in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so yeah, another key important another key thing was the IHRA document was the acceptance of the IHRA document. Um, so I mean, there was some uh, argument in the party, wasn't there? There was some debate, I think, whether or not to accept it in whole or make some changes. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so it's um, it's essentially an, an intensely politicized um, so-called working definition of anti-Semitism, which um, contains a confusing uh, definition of anti-Semitism, along with uh, 11 examples of what it states are anti-Semitism. And the majority of those examples actually uh, address the state of Israel, and uh, a few of them are actually uh, are incredibly dangerous because they potentially outlaw criticism of Israel, uh, pot potentially certainly chill free speech on criticism of Israel and, and of Zionism, the 
the state of Israel's um, ruling ideology. Um, so there was um, there was kind there was debate in the sense of it was discussed whether to adopt the whole thing. So Jeremy Corbyn, the people around him, he tried to do this overly clever thing of or what it, what it, they thought was overly clever. They thought was clever um, of just adopting the definition and not the examples. And they thought like nobody would notice that. But of course, then designers then use that more as a wedge issue. Um, and then, you know, it resulted in this whole, um, the really the peak of the witch hunt in, um, in the summer of 2018, where it was, there was the Labour leaders, the left-wing Labour leaders were saying, ah, oh, well, we have adopted the definition. Uh, and then the Zionists would come back and say, oh, well, we haven't adopted, you know, you, but you haven't adopted the example, so therefore you haven't adopted the whole thing. Um, it was, it, this is part of a much longer campaign by Israel lobby groups and the state of Israel itself to change the definition of anti-Semitism, which goes back decades, really. You know, um, the Israeli then Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Eban in 1972, I believe it was, for, um, pushed this phrase, the new anti-Semitism. And essentially what, what the new anti-Semitism is, is um, it's kind of like, it, it, it's uh, kind of like, a rebranding exercise to change um, the definition of anti-Semitism away from uh, discrimination against Jews to criticism of Israel and its ideology Zionism of having a uh, having a Jewish state in a country Palestine which is overwhelmingly historically not Jewish. So um, you know it was. It, 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 it was a part of a long-running battle because, I mean, the RHRA definition originated only in, 20, uh, in, only in 2016, but it was almost identical to an earlier definition, So um, the, which was um, basically dropped by a, an EU body. What so was the it, uh, Asa, have you ever been, been able to find out? Because I couldn't. Who in the world is the IHRA and who's behind them? And who makes them an authority to suddenly redefine what anti-Semitism is? I mean, and why are people listening to them? Well, that's a good question. I mean, because I was I was not able to find any answers in, with my, you know, with my limited, uh, you know, resources to, you know, what's behind them and why are people listening to them? Cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. Like, it, it, it's been treated as almost holy writ, you know, and it, it's just essentially it's because just because it, it, it's something that's been pushed by the Israel lobby and, and the state of Israel. It's become a useful document. It's part of this, of the Zionist movement's quite long history of taking sometimes obscure documents and bodies and then just utilizing them to their advantage essentially to try and continue the colonization of of palestine yeah. and to push for um support for their project um from western governments yeah it's really quite incredible um tony your, your history with this goes back uh quite a ways as you were saying earlier um 
what's your take on the IHRA and, and how it was handled and, and, and what it says? Well, the IHRA, okay. you don't need to be a genius to understand what anti-Semitism is. I mean, the analogy I always give is when my dad went into battle in the Battle of Cable Street in 1936 against Oswald Mosley's fascists. Uh, 100,000 Jews and non-Jewish dockers and workers did. Uh, uh, and he knew what anti-Semitism was. It was someone who attacks you because you're a Jew. It's hatred or hostility of Jews as Jews. I mean, it, it's simple. You don't need a 500 word definition, which isn't even a definition. I mean, the problem the Zionists faced was they made all these accusations of anti-Semitism, but people were still thinking about anti-Semitism in terms of hatred or hostility to Jews. The purpose of the IHRA was to redefine anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism in essence. I mean, yeah. that's what it comes down to. And who are the IHRA? Well, they're just an intergovernmental body which was set up, uh, I don't know, 20 odd years ago to commemorate the, the Holocaust. And it was seen as a suitable vehicle with which to take up the old working definition of anti-Semitism, which had been written specifically to equate hostility to Zionism with hostility to Jews. It was called, I mean, Israel was the new Jew amongst the nations, yeah? So they redefined anti-Semitism, not as hatred of Jews, but as hatred of Israel or Zionism. Except of course, well, you can't, racism is a, about people. It's not about states. It's not about objects, inanimate uh, uh, constructs, if you like. So, I mean, that was what it was about. but. The problem with Jeremy Corbyn is he never understood what it was he was being faced with. He never understood the attack on him. He, he had a strategy, which I'm sure he worked out with Seamus Mill and others, of appeasing the right, because the right was an overwhelming majority in the PLP, of trying to win them over to his project. But you know- The PLP, excuse me, PLP is the- is Parliamentary the Labour Party, sorry, yes. The problem was that they're hard-bitten right-wingers, Blairites in the main, who, who were not going to subscribe uh, to the Corbyn project in any shape or form. Couple that with, I mean, the first newspaper to take up the anti-Semitism cause was the Daily Mail. It was the beginning of August when they alleged he was associating with a Holocaust denier called Paul Eisen. Now, I mean, <laughs> the Daily Mail is notorious for its hatred and hostility to refugees. It's a racist newspaper. Before the war, it supported Hitler. It used to campaign against the admission of bogus Jewish refugees in Nazi Germany. They were only coming here because they wanted a better lifestyle. You know, that, that was what the, the Daily Mail was about. So why should the Mail and the Express and the rest of the tabloid, including the Guardian, be suddenly so concerned with anti-Semitism? I mean, the Daily Mail and Sun employed Katie Hopkins he described refugees coming from North Africa as cockroaches, you know, which is a Nazi-style term, vermin. It's what Hitler said about the Jews, back of us. So why should they be concerned about anti-Semitism? Clearly they're not. Anti-Semitism was the convenient flag under which they could attack Corbyn. And that makes sense. You know, if they attack Corbyn because he didn't want austerity or cuts to children's... Uh, school meals or anything else, they wouldn't get much support. But if you pose it in terms of a moral question, like anti-Semitism, it suddenly makes you feel righteous. That's what anti-Semitism did. It's a badge of identity, not simply for Israel, 
but actually the West, the West has incorporated Zionism into itself and appropriated the memory of the Holocaust. And in doing that, it thinks it can have right on its side. So you have the absurd situation in Vienna when Ronnie Casarils, a, a Jewish ex-commander uh, of the ANC's military wing, you know, a man who's anti-racist credentials, no one can question. He's barred from local authority premises to speak. A unanimous vote of Vienna Council. And who voted? Not only the Social Democrats and the Greens, but the neo-Nazi Freedom Party. And the same in the Bundestag, the most hostile party uh, to a BDS. What, what wasn't even the Christian Democrats or the Social Democrats, it was a neo-Nazi alternative for Germany. Uh, so we have this situation today. The, the most ardent supporters of Israel are also the people who don't really like Jews very much. It's always been the case, but today I think it should be pretty obvious. Yeah, and, and when you look, looking back, I think, I mean, that's great insight, Tony. You know, looking at, looking at the IHRA uh, and some of the, the examples that they give, um, accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel, um, well, I think when you look at the Board of Deputies, for example, or some of the some of the Zionists in the UK, who they clearly are agents of Zionism. In other, in other words, but now you can't say this because if you say this, you can't attack them, you can't criticize them because if you say this, it's anti-Semitism. Denying Jewish people the right to self-determination by... Say on that one, the dual loyalty one, because that's usually brought out against us, isn't it? Precisely. Yeah, that we, it's anti-Semitic to say Jews are disloyal, but the whole point of Zionism is to make Jews alienated from their society, to make them loyal to Israel. In, in I think it was 2014, the Israeli embassy and the ministry, Israeli Ministry of Absorption actually had an opinion poll survey of American Jews as to what would you do in a crisis in relations between the United States and Israel? Who would you support? Who would you be loyal to? Zionism is inherently about dual loyalty. I mean, the number of times I've been accused of being a traitor, and I ask, what am I a traitor to? Israel? I, uh, I don't live there. I'm not a citizen of there. But that is a Zionist accusation. Precisely. Precisely. And that's and, and, I, and, and having accepted this definition, um, it's impossible to say, to, to say exactly what you say, which is absolutely true. Because the whole premise is that Jews should leave where they are and go somewhere else. Right. Jews go and serve in the military and so forth. And then you've got denying Jewish people the right to self-determination by claiming the existence of Israel is a racist state. First of all, Israel is not an expression of Jewish self-determination. It's an expression of Israeli and Zionist self-determination. But, um, um, and on and on, you know, the, 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 and, but even when we look at these examples, and Chris, I'll go back to you. I don't believe you or Jeremy uh, have ever even said these things. In other words, Jeremy Corbyn's premise was always a two-state solution. It was quite a Zionist premise. He never came out against uh, in, in any way that I could, that I ever heard uh, it, it, to express even this level. And yet they, they, they were, they, they came after him. Am I, am I, am I right? You're absolutely right. And of course it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. I mean, the truth is, Jeremy absolutely never did say anything which could be remotely regarded as anti-Semitic, nor did I, for that matter. I mean, I was never, in fact, accused of anti-Semitism by the Labour Party officially. I mean, very, many kind of Zionists and, and, and uh, you know, right-wing uh, sort of uh, neoliberals who 
jumped on the uh, anti-Semitism bandwagon uh, would would often do so. But the truth is the official charge seat that was leveled against me was a kind of an Orwellian phrase that was used where I was guilty of what they described as a pattern of behavior. And uh, I was uh, alleged to have been a Jew beta, believe it or not. Uh, the reason why I was a Jew beta, for example, was because I'd responded to a request from Jewish members of the Labour Party to show a film about the attacks on uh, Zionist, anti-Zionist Jews in the House of Commons, in a room in the House of Commons. A film that I think all but one of the participants in which were themselves Jewish. That was one of the charges that was leveled uh, against me. Uh, and, and so it went on. I mean, another one was because I'd referred someone uh, to a video by Norman Finkelstein, who was taking Margaret Hodge to task for trying to draw an equivalence between the horrors of the Holocaust and her receiving a letter from the Labour Party uh, chiding her for saying that Jeremy Corbyn, excuse my uh, language now, is a racist fucking anti-Semite. And uh, in the House of Commons chamber, believe it or not, behind the Speaker's chair, in front of a load of Tories. Understandably, she got a letter reminding her of her uh, obligations as a, as, a, as a member of Parliament and certain decorums should be applied. She should have got far worse than that. She should have been expelled from the party for such a transgression, in my view. And uh, of course, that never, never uh, happened. But no, you're absolutely right. No, I was never accused of uh, directly of, of anti-Semitism, a range of uh, you know, bogus uh, charges. And in fact, I had a meeting with the general secretary of the Labour Party um, two weeks before I was actually actually suspended me. And this was somebody who was brought in. It was allegedly on the side, allegedly a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, allegedly a socialist. And yet she accelerated the witch hunt. I mean, I think more people were suspended and expelled under Jenny Formby's watch than under Ian Nichols. But she um, was uh, uh, asking me why I was attending so many meetings around the country because I'd been invited. I was promoting democracy, promoting the, the Corbyn uh, project. And, um, you know, she, she told me that she would be, in her words, pissed off if I went into her constituency, uh, if she was an MP. And, you know, she very clearly was, uh, you know, not happy with the sort of activities that I was engaged in. And she said to me, I get more complaints about you, Chris, than every other member of the Labour Party put together. And I said, that sounds fairly implausible, but if it's true, Jenny, surely that indicates to you, does it not? But that's a concerted, a confected campaign. And you need to just simply, you know, treat it with the contempt it deserves, throw it in the waste bin. To which she was very, you know, um, animated and, uh, and annoyed at my response. She said, well, what do you think we've done? We haven't taken any complaints against you, have we? I said, well, why would you? You've just acknowledged, because she accepted that they were uh, confected. Um, uh, it was a confected, you know, pile of nonsense. She kind of accepted that point. So I said, well, why would you, Jenny? You've just accepted that they, they don't really amount to any real genuine um, uh, complaints about me. It's a confected campaign and this is faux outrage which is being uh, shown here. And, you know, you need to, we need to stand up to this because it's, you know, it's, it's just going to end badly if we don't. Anyway, the meeting ended and uh, as I say, a fortnight later, I, um, uh, I uh, was uh, suspended by her. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, I made the mistake, I've got to say as well, Miko, of issuing a qualified statement on the day. That was as a favour to Jeremy's team in the leader's office. 
it was the day of Parliament Prime Minister's questions, and they were saying, oh, this is going to come up in, in, in the House because there was lots of headlines about me speaking at a, a meeting, a big rally in Sheffield, where I'd said that Labour had been too apologetic about its, uh, the way it's responded to the issue of anti-Semitism. I mean, our record, I was saying, stands any examination. We've been leading the charge on, on, on tackling um, anti-Semitism and all forms of, of bigotry. And, and, and we've invited these criticisms because of the way in which we've, we've responded. I said we backed off for too much. That was being misrepresented in the media. And I made the mistake of issuing a qualified apology on that day. That was then weaponized uh, against me. And uh, I was, um, before I'd left that meeting, and I'd said to the people in there that, you know, the reason we're in this situation is because you've, you've handled this whole question of anti-Semitism, these anti-Semitism smears very badly from start to finish, to which they agreed, but said, oh, but we are where we are now. And I issued this statement. That was supposed to be the end of the matter. But before I'd left that meeting room, I was told that I was going to be subject to an official investigation by the party. And before the end of the afternoon, I was, it was elevated to a full suspension. And to add insult to injury, they notified the press before they notified me. As I was receiving the telephone call, I was outside Parliament, the parliamentary estate uh, on, on the uh, Parliament Street in Whitehall. And uh, as I was taking the call to say I was being suspended, a Sky News TV crew came down the street, filming me taking the telephone call to tell me I was suspended. And then as soon as I came off the call, they were asking me what my reaction was to uh, being suspended from the Labour Party and had I spoken to Jeremy Corbyn, etc., etc. I mean, it's absolutely dis despicable, disreputable behaviour from start to finish. The bureaucracy is broken inside the Labour Party, not just under the McNichol regime, but under the Formby regime as well. I regret to say that, but that is the fact of the matter. And sadly, these characters had Jeremy's ear and they were giving him catastrophic advice. And this is where it's ended, Jeremy's suspension. And I think ultimately, ultimately expulsion from the Labour Party. A man who's given his life to the Labour Party, a man who's given his life to fighting racism is traduced in this way but of course he's not the only one as i've already said ken livingston mark wadsworth jackie walker tony greenstein myself and many many other grassroots activists who've experienced incredible many of them uh, bouts of of severe mental ill health it's, it's really affected people at oh, yeah. you know, i know at least one person who's attempted to take her own life as a consequence of it i know many other people who've lost their employment as the direct consequence of these despicable outrageous smears and the labor party when they suspend people now in order to cover themselves, believe it or not, they give them the, the telephone number of the Samaritans, a helpline for people who are experiencing suicidal uh, thoughts. It's just, it's, you know, you, if you'd have said this to me 10 years ago, this is where the Labour Party went out. I'd have said, this in, no, don't be ridiculous. The Labour Party is a party that stands up for people, that, that defends people, that looks out for vulnerable people. It would never do that to people. And yet here we are. Yeah. absolutely despicable and outrageous behavior these people i mean they should um, you know hang their heads in shame they're a bloody disgrace uh, miko they really are and as you can tell i feel quite passionate about it no, yeah absolutely. and you're absolutely, and you're outrageous absolutely behavior right outrageous behavior you're absolutely right you gave you gave you gave your life to the party you gave your life to the cause to an important cause of helping people and and being on the right on the right side of these issues and fighting anti-semitism and fighting racism which is why so many other people joined the labor party because they believe exactly. in Jeremy and the things that you stand for and I remember also when I was um, over the years of several several of uh, Labour uh, Party uh, conventions you know just talking to people and just you know normal like you know rank and file members who would tell me stories of how they were suddenly suspended as well yeah. uh, because of a post they shared on Facebook which was never actually explained to them. In other words, they never really were told what the post was, but the context was somehow, I don't know, some, something vague, similar to what you were describing. 
and they were suddenly suspended and they've been members also for very for a very yeah. long time so it's and almost it's, exclusively miko they were socialists they were pro-palestinian activists yeah. and certainly jeremy corbyn supporters it was jeremy's praetorian guard in the grassroots that was being systematically attacked and, it, and it's completely unacceptable in my view for people who, as I was saying earlier, who, who, who aspire to be the leaders of, of, of a socialist movement in the socialist campaign group of Labour MPs, who did not speak up for a solitary soul. And they're just, I mean, now grudgingly, some of them, you know, getting behind Jeremy, but a lot of them haven't even supported Jeremy. They do not deserve to describe themselves as socialists. And they shouldn't, they certainly shouldn't be described by it, others as socialists. Yeah. It's like you said. It's as far as, as, as possible to be. They're a bloody disgrace. And you know, the, I'm sorry, who's this? It's like, it's like you said um, towards the beginning, Miko, it was an attempt to uh, divide and rule, basically. It was an yeah. attempt to bring slowly the supporters of Corbyn were getting less and less and less until we see now um, that there's, uh, you know, even the, the so-called left-wing MPs in the Labour Party, some of them, are not supporting him you know don't feel able to support him and it, it was one by one you know and it was it started really from ken livingston you know yeah. there was too many people who called themselves left-wing who um who had some kind of platform or national profile who really threw ken livingston under the bus because they they saw him you know maybe they had some sort of grudge with him um you know it and they just sort of thought, well, well, it'll just be this person. We'll just sort of let this one go and it will be all right. And, you know, it'll be a kind of sacrifice for the... Um, for the it wasn't just a person. It was a pillar. Ken Livingston was a, was a pillar in the Labour Party. I mean, I, I'm not a Brit, but I even, yeah, you know, I know about Ken, Ken Livingston. You know, I lived in London for a while. I, I remember the GLC. I mean, Ken Livingston, he's not just anybody who they threw under the bus. They threw some... Yeah serious and perhaps that was a test case to see well if nobody comes to in his defense then we can just keep going yeah you and also I mean? he was he he was really the only uh at that time because that was before chris was um back in the labor part you know back in parliament um he was really the only person who had uh, in the labor party only corbyn's only defender in the labor party who had a national standing who had like yeah. who had a national profile you know and uh, and who could get access to mainstream media you know and who um was somebody who um could uh, who was defending corbyn and saying yeah look this is rubbish these are smears you know um so uh, it, 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 he was really targeted in that way, you know. By, by you know, I want I want to segue. I want to I want to segue to uh, to the United States right now. Uh, all morning, you know, there's been um, we're talking about the Democratic Party, and there's a progressive wing now in the Democratic Party, which grew by by several members uh, who are just elected, newly members of Congress, who are very progressive and part of this uh, the squad, as they call AOC and some of the others, you know. They are all, uh, they're true fighters. I mean, God forbid they won't describe themselves as socialists. In America, socialism is, a, you know, a bad word. But uh, they are progressives. And they also, uh, their stance, their progressive stance includes support of, 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 of a call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and, and su 
so solidarity with Palestinians because these are people who are activists before they they became uh, you know they got into into real life politics. Um, and I'm wondering if there are any lessons there for them right now because I mean they were elected. Um, the squad just got reelected, which is good. You know, after two years, it was there was, was there was quite a it was it wasn't questionable whether or not they would be able to overcome the opposition and get reelected, and they got reelected. And again, they were strengthened now with at least two other uh, members of Congress, uh, Jamal Bauman and, and Cory Bush. Uh, is there a lesson here for the progressives in in the Democratic Party? Uh, Asa, I wanted to go ahead and would you talk about that? The lesson is don't give an inch because yeah. like you can't like and it's not it's not about ideological purity or anything like that it's simply you cannot win you won't be able to win you won't be able to win any kind of um electoral victory for your party if um you give in on this issue if you give in if you give in to the israel lobby and you give in to zionists in this way um you won't be able if you, if you give in if you give in to the idea that um like unfortunately we did see uh aoc do that you know to an extent like when she uh criticized um ilhan omar for make when she made ilhan omar made a accurate comment about the israel lobby being fueled by yeah uh, money which it is it's just a fact you know um and then saying, oh, well, you know, it was the way she phrased it was offensive and all this kind of thing. Um, but then, of course, she made up for it by refusing to go or, or canceling her, 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 her um, uh, appearance at, a, at, a commemorate, at an event commemorating Yitzhak Rabin. So she kind of, <laughs> she she's kind of know, knows which side she's on a little bit more, perhaps, uh, perhaps right now. Um, but still, you, you know, you, you think this would, this would be easy because... Certainly, the four of us and and many, if not all of the people, hundreds of people participating and people around the world, explaining why Israel, demonstrating why and how Israel is a racist endeavor, is the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, it's the easiest thing in the world. Its own citizens, who are Palestinians, are denied rights, water, electricity, roads, and medical care. Its own citizens, because they're Palestinians. Never mind two million people in the Gaza Strip and five million languishing in refugee camps that are not allowed to return because they're Palestinians, had they been Jewish. So, I mean, it's a very easy conversation to have, and it's very easy to explain. Yet here we are, you know, um, barely holding on. And of course, like we saw in the, in the UK with, with, with Jeremy Corbyn, this was really a, a serious blow. And really, just a final blow in 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 a vicious campaign. Why do you suppose this is so difficult? Why do you suppose this is so complicated? Maybe Tony, you want to say something about that? It's it's obvious. It's apparent. It's clear. The other side is clearly supporting racism and violence and and, and oppression. Well, of course, uh, that's true. Of course, that's why true. Are they, why are but they? Go ahead. Well, I mean. You can take Tom Watson as a good example. He, Tom Watson vowed that he wouldn't rest until the last anti-Semite was expelled from the Labour Party. But this was a man who abstained on the 2014 Immigration Act, which led to the Windrush scandal, whereby hundreds, if not thousands, of black British citizens were illegally deported to the Caribbean. This was a man who stood up for the racist Labour MP, Phil Willis, who openly campaigned to 
to make the white folks angry in his constituency in 2010 and was thrown out of Parliament by the High Court for egregious lying about his opponent. Tom Watson wrote he had lost sleep thinking about poor Phil. So the idea that these people were in any way concerned about racism, you know, is for the birds. Of course they weren't. No. Uh, and they were the ones who demonized asylum seekers under New Labour. So it's they clothed themselves in the bogus, the false anti-racism in order to give themselves moral legitimacy. I mean, that is what it's really about. And the problem with the anti-Semitism thing is it, it cuts into the fault line in the left, which is identity politics, because mm -hmm. Jews are part of a, are a separate identity, aren't they? Uh, the fact that Jewish identity has transformed itself in the last 70, 80 years, you know, Jews used to be synonymous with being on the left, not on the right. Trade unionists, and the most militant trade unionists were Jewish trade unionists. That's how they broke down the barriers with the Dockers, for instance, who had been quite anti-Semitic in the East End. But identity politics says any identity, however reactionary it is, is equally valid with another identity. So you can posit Jews living in the suburbs of London who identify with Israel. They're equally valid with a Palestinian village which is suffering from a lack of water on the West Bank and whose crops are being burnt down by settlers. Uh, and therefore the IHRA makes the Palestinians anti-Semitic for protesting against the racism that they suffer from. I mean, that, that is the absurdity. Now, of mm. course, we have intersectionality, which takes this on board, and that a, a single identity is not enough because it, it has a number of different strands to it. But that, I think, is one of the main problems. Uh, that's why I'm a socialist. I, I, I believe class politics, Marxism, uh, enables you to understand society in a way that otherwise it's very difficult to. So you can see, for instance, when Corbyn came into power, the alarm bells rang. I mean, from Langley, Virginia, where the CIA is based, to MI5, to Tel Aviv and the military headquarters. The idea of a guy who's anti-NATO, anti-war, who's identified with the opponents of America, becoming possibly even prime minister of America's closest ally. I mean, they must have been, you know, terror stricken in some cases. That's where all of this originated. The problem with Corbyn is, I don't want to call him stupid, but he didn't get it. I mean, if I can quote, and I, I, I'm going to quote from the Labour leaked report. He actually believed that getting rid of me and Jackie Walker and Mark Wadsworth and Ken Livingston would improve his chances. And, and this is what it says on page 306 of the report. It says, Jeremy Corbyn himself and members of his staff team requested to GLU, that's a compliance unit, the governance and legal unit, that particular anti-Semitism cases be dealt with. In 2017, Lotto, that's the leader of the opposition staff, chased for action on high profile anti-Semitism cases Ken Livingston, Tony Greenstein, Jackie Walker and Mark Wadsworth, stressing that these cases were of great concern to Jewish stakeholders and that resolving them was essential to, and they quote, rebuilding trust between the Labour Party and the Jewish community. Well, we were expelled, but it didn't rebuild trust because they went on to demand a whole load more expulsions. And so it went on. The more people they expelled, the more people they demanded were expelled. Yeah. And of course, the more people you expelled, 
the greater proof there was that there was a real anti-Semitism problem. So Corbyn really was left with nothing to do. He was running on a, a what's it, a treadmill. The faster he ran, the faster the treadmill was. And so, so he went nowhere. He was just expelling people. And so, yes, Formby was far more effective at expelling people than McNichol. McNichol was extremely incompetent, the, the previous. So they were extremely efficient. But it didn't do them much good in the end. And it's interesting because none of this has anything to do with anti-Semitism. Like no, of course said, not. Of course not. And, and, the, and, 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 the, and the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in, in, in Jerusalem. These were really the powers that had to bring him down for all the reasons that you stated clearly. Of course, this man was an activist who talked about Palestinian rights. And so imagine him becoming, and, and Chris, you described, you know, the, the, the vision that Jeremy Corbyn and the promise that he had. And imagine this man be, sitting, going into, into Downing Street 10. That was a nightmare. And they were, I think they were going to do everything and everything they possibly could uh, to, to make that an impossibility. And it's interesting what you said also, Tony, about the, the idea of this Jewish identity because, and the idea of a Jewish community. Because one of the claims that's being made by that I see by the board of, of, of deputies of the Jewish, whatever they call the Jewish community of the UK Jews and so forth, is that something like 98% of UK Jews are Zionists. Well, that's a lie because- It's, it's impossible because out of 260,000 uh, Jews in the UK, at least 60,000 live in Stamford Hill and are ultra-Orthodox Jews and are absolutely anti-Zionist. Anti it's not all well, of them. Well, some of them are, but Yachad, which is a liberal Zionist group, conducted, survey with City University in 2015 and they asked exactly that question of British Jews. Are you a Zionist? 59% which was down 12% in five years said yes. 31% which is nearly a third said no and 10% didn't know whether they were a Zionist. So where they get a 98% figure well, from I simply it. don't know. Well they're Zionists so they don't need to bite <laughs> Yeah, I think those are often interpretations when they say it's it isn't that high when they they reinterpret um, certain responses to questions about you know. Yes, they do. They say if you identify with Israel, well, I, I identify with Israel, but not the way they expect. Yeah. So yeah. It's yeah. A I think I, I think Tony's point about um, identity politics is is a is a good one because it's this is a a real. Uh, this is a part of the one of the main reasons I would say why this has been such a successful campaign for um, the ministry of the Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs against the left in this country and for the Labour right against Jeremy Corbyn is, is this um, Israeli government led attempt to redefine um, Zionism to redefine it into an identity like just a personal identity of my my own you know how i how i feel about myself and away from what it actually is which is a concrete um political ideology which has um very real negative effects on palestinians um you know in from everything from um expelling them expelling um 800,000 of them uh, in the nakba in 1948 up until the present day where um, their villages are being demolished because of what? Because of Zionism, you know? So um, the, it's a rebranding exercise. It's been a rebranding exercise. When you, when you put it in those terms and say, I'm anti-Zionist because we don't want Palestinians to be expelled from their homes, um, to be discriminated against, 
um, and and to be killed. Um, that's why we're anti-Zionist. When you say it in those terms, then that's going to get a lot of support. But if you can ignore that and re and spin that and say, well, um, Zionism is just an expression of Jewishness. If then if someone says, uh, oh well, um, I'm an anti-Zionist, then you are. If you believe that false definition, then it becomes um, anti-Semitism. So um, this is why this is you know this kind of exploitation of identity, particular type of exploitation of identity politics that Tony described has been quite successful within the Labour Party left in, in dividing the left against itself. Yes, and, and I think I would point out as well that you cannot be claimed to be, uh, to hold uh, progressive values uh, and at the same time be a Zionist because Zionism is an inherently racist, violent ideology that puts one people as superior to another. That's basically what Zionism is. And it doesn't matter how they try to color, color it to pink and yellow and God knows what other colors. Uh, it is it is basically a racist ideology that says that Tony and I have more rights in Palestine than, than the Palestinians do. Um, and I wanna segue back to the United States before just before we, we, we um, open it up for questions. Um, They've been interviewing Jamal Bauman, who's one of the incoming members of Congress, and Ilhan Omar, and yesterday uh, AOC, about this new, the, what's going to happen within the Democratic Party. And thankfully, so far, their statements are very, very clear. And, and, uh, and like you said, Asa, they're, they're standing strong. I mean, Palestine was not the issue. Other issues came up, like, God forbid, people, everybody should have health care and things like that or the environment uh but they they're they're standing strong they're saying you know we were elected it because of these values these this is what we're going to represent within the party and now it all depends on on, on we'll see, we'll see what happens hopefully palestine will be able to uh push its way in there as well and the fight the fight against these accusations you know something that i think we need to take on as opposed to wait for them to come after us which is seems like that's what's been what's been happening uh, all around, and, and there's definitely. I think I, can, I think I think we need to, to to take a close look at what happened in the Labour Party and, and the UK, and uh, and realize how close we were to something really fantastic, and and how it all came tumbling down. Um, Just to re-emphasize that the lesson to answer your earlier question again, yeah. the lesson to learn is don't give an inch. You cannot give an inch. Like absolutely was. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think anybody who knows anything about bullies would would, would say that. I mean, you know, yeah. you know give an inch to a bully because they're going to keep pushing you around and um and and i i absolutely agree with everything that you that you've all said um so far so let's see jamil shall we open it up um to the questions we've got a lot of questions a lot of people chatting and asking questions so let's uh god yes 27 sure thing yeah and and we also received uh, uh questions via email prior to to the event so i'm gonna i'm gonna read one of those now this one is from gerald uh, and the question is i was wondering how with seamus milne as his communications director jeremy corbyn direct developed no strategy to deal with the anti-semitism smears after all seamus had written the book the enemy within which detailed the smear attacks on the num and particularly arthur scargill during the miners strikes and would therefore be familiar with the types of attacks where the state and other actors come together in a concerted campaign to blacken the reputation of anyone representing a threat to the status quo. Chris, you want to take that on? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Seamus never 
never applied his own uh, advice, really, I guess. And uh, I think, you know, Seamus, Seamus, in my opinion, would have been better if he'd have stayed at the Guardian writing op-eds. Uh, I mean, he, he really, he didn't really step up to the role of the sort of strategic uh, PR advisor that he was appointed to do. And the, the strategy that they employed, as we've already said, without repeating ourselves, was utterly catastrophic and actually led directly to the situation that we're in today because the approach that they applied uh, only gave um, ammunition to and uh, and emboldened those who were making these bad faith actors who were making these lurid and uh, extreme accusations which had no basis in fact and the response was to lean into them and uh, and to take it on the chin and apologize and uh, and they just never learned a lesson i mean it was it was it was disastrous catastrophic and I don't know. I mean, what, what, I mean, somebody said, <laughs> somebody suggested that uh, the um, the film, the invasion of the body snatchers, was in the Labour Party's case um, a question of science fact rather than science fiction, because all these great figures that we previously looked to seem to be completely um, at odds with where we thought they were in terms of the positions that they took up. And Seamus is is a case in point, sadly. I've no explanation for it. It's just, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it does make you a bit speechless. I think you're right. <laughs> you, you're seeing gobsmacked there at me go in, in, in with my response. But I mean, what yeah. else can you say? I mean, he yeah. just, he just, he just, he was not up to what he was appointed to do, in my opinion. Well, Corbyn never really understood the campaign against him. But the remarkable thing is neither did his office. He had all these people around him, like yeah. Seamus. And they never once devised a strategy. And it was, no. I think, quite simple. All Corbyn had to do was make a major speech yeah. on the anti-Semitism issue, saying, I oppose anti-Semitism, but I also oppose and condemn the weaponization of anti-Semitism against people who are supporters of Palestine. After all, anyone, I mean, everyone who's been involved and is involved in Palestine solidarity is accused of anti-Semitism. I doubt if there's a single person who has been campaigning around it who has not been accused of anti-Semitism. We all know this. So why, why the pretense, this nonsense about if you deny your anti-Semitism, then you are anti-Semitic. This is the old Salem witch trials, wasn't it? Yep. If you denied you were a witch, that would prove you were a witch. Mm -hmm. It has the same logic to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think clearly attack is the best form, is the only form of... of, of Absolutely. Defense here. This is uh, they need to be reminded that they supporting Zionism is supporting racism, clear and simple. There's no mm. anti Semitism in, in, in Palestine solidarity, and it's impossible to be anti racist if you are a Zionist, of course. These are the things that I think, uh, although people individually can think they are, mm. and sometimes they are in some ways, but not other ways, because people have divided consciousness, a fragmented consciousness, as, as Marxists might say. Go ahead, Jamil, what's next? The next question is from Joe. The question is, some people are staying in the party to fight and keep a left-wing presence and hope Jeremy and Chris too will be back in. Others are hoping for a new party. What do the panel think is the way forward for the left? Whoever wants to jump in, go ahead. This is the good one. Well, in my opinion, Mika, the, the Labour Party is dead as a vehicle for delivering socialism it's dead as a vehicle to deliver a ethical foreign policy it's dead as a vehicle to 
stand up for the Palestinian people. And in many ways, Jeremy Corbyn was, a, was an aberration and the right wing of the Labour Party will not allow that scenario to arise again. And in my opinion, I think our best efforts should be devoted now to building an alternative. And what we need, in my opinion, is a two-pronged strategy. We need to build a social movement as well as an alternative electoral vehicle. I think if we put all our eggs in one or other basket, if we just focus exclusively on electoral strategy, this is where I think the Labour Party has gone wrong, to be honest, because there's no kind of real base to it in that sense. It's always been focused around you know, winning elections rather than building a movement. And this was one of the things I was hopeful with Jeremy's leadership because he did talk about building a social movement. We were on the way to doing just that, but then we never really followed through. And I just think now what we should be focused on because look, where is the support for Jeremy? I mean, it's been very muted as I've already said from the people like the Socialist Campaign Group, uh, from the trade union movement. Um, it looked like Unite might take a stronger stand than they did, but they haven't in the end. In reality, you know, they've called their bluff. And I think what they should be doing, and I've been urging now and we'll be launching a campaign in the not too distant future for a, a defund and disaffiliate uh, campaign for the trade union movement. This is what they should be doing. I mean, and, you know, I mean, just before I uh, we came on to the, the programme today, I had a message from somebody on social media saying that, you know, that the we should be occupied I mean, in terms of standing up for Jeremy. Go and occupy the, uh, the Labour Party's head office, you know, make life difficult for them. The trade unions should be really following through on their uh, on their threat. This is unacceptable what you're doing to our uh, leader or our former leader. This is a man, as I've already said, who's devoted his life to the Labour movement, to fighting racism and socialism, the cause of socialism. Uh, unless you reinstate him, we are going to completely defund you. You go off to your rich benefactors if you wish, but we won't fund you anymore. This is a party that's born out of the trade union, but they're not doing it. So Starmer and company, Sir Keir Starmer, the pillar of the establishment and the right wingers and the, the Zionist lobby, they've called the bluff. And the left, once again, the left in parliament, that is, and the kind of upper echelons, not the grassroots, because many of the grassroots have been, have been very, very supportive. They've been left wanting and they've just been, you know, not up to the, not up to the uh, uh, required standard that's, that's needed. To really you know fight this battle out because what we know is that our opponents are incredibly ruthless and unless we match that ruthlessness we're just going to get swallowed we're just going to get eaten alive as has happened i mean just look at what's happened i would say to people watching this program now thinking of staying inside the labor party and if you are going to stay for god's sake don't be silent speak out because if you don't you're complicit in this whole disreputable affair that we've seen played out before us. And Chris, you've started a new movement anyway, haven't you? Well, we have, yes. I mean, and uh, I've got to be honest, we're slightly in the doldrums because of the impact of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, but we, we, we have a movement, yes, and uh, we've got thousands of members, but difficult to kind of organise activities on the yeah. ground. Uh, and this is part of what I believe we need in terms of trying to kind of create a social movement uh, and trying to do politics with people, not to people, bring people into our movement, sort of raise political consciousness, raise political expectations in that sense. And we've also been very clear in this movement will not just be one that's merely focused on the UK, as important as that is, because there's many problems confronting people in the UK, but we want to be very much as a high priority, top priority, an equal priority with, with, with uh, you know, fighting for a better deal for uh, people in Britain is to fight for, you know, an anti-imperialist strategy to, to express solidarity with liberation struggles around the world. And obviously right at the top of, of that list would be the struggle of the Palestinian people. We have to, in my opinion, 
be internationalist in our approach, be anti-imperialist as well as uh, having a kind of a socialist economic agenda at home. And raising political consciousness, raising political expectations, in my opinion, is a way to go. And from that, I'm hoping that we can kind of, you know, as it were, build a desire for a new political vehicle. Because I honestly just think the Labour Party is so broken now uh, that it's really impossible to, to repair it. And if you think about it, the Labour Party has always been a tool of the establishment, really since its uh, foundation, or certainly since the end of the First World War. Um, you know, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution and so on, to if you like, quell revolutionary fervor in the in the working class. And I think we just need to recognise that, be real about it. And I think there was, you know, we we used to be able to get some crumbs on the table. We saw what happened. You know, the forty-five to fifty-one Labour government made some significant improvements, uh, built a sort of post-war consensus for uh, you know domestic policy. It was still very imperialist though in its foreign policy, um, but now the left has been utterly crushed. I mean, there is just no We've now got, as we, as you have in the United States of America, two establishment parties, and it doesn't really matter which party gets in. Uh, the kind of neoliberal war machine will continue. You know, the the military-industrial complex will still be, you know, center stage. And uh, that's if we're serious about railing against that. I think we we have to build uh, and grow a new movement and potentially a new electoral vehicle because I, can, I just can't see how the Labour Party just can't see what the mechanisms are to actually make that Labour Party a vehicle, again, to, that might embrace the sort of agenda that Jeremy Corbyn was uh, promoting when he became the leader. That's anathema to uh, Sir Keir Starmer and the Parliamentary Labour Party. We've no means of replacing these uh, people inside the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party now. We haven't got any, there's no open selection process and no process of calling them to no, account. It's struggle, wasn't it? The open selection was a big struggle. It was a big struggle, and and, and we lost it. And again, that you know, the uh, the uh, left, so-called left leaders of, of the movement, let us down. I mean, Len Len McCluskey, who was the Unite General Secretary's policy of Unite is to support democracy in terms of open selections. They passed that motion at their own conference in I think 2016, in the aftermath of the coup against Jeremy Corbyn. At that 2018 conference, when these democracy reforms are being debated, Len McCluskey led his delegation to oppose it. And the votes, as you may know, Miko, are split between the grassroots activists have 50% of the votes, and the trade union delegations have 50% of the votes. 90-plus yeah. percent of the grassroots activists supported these democratic reforms, supported uh, open selections. Right. All the trade union delegations, apart from the fire brigade union, opposed them. Had Unite supported them, because they are a big affiliate um, trade union, th th those reforms would have sailed through and the course of history would have been totally different. Yeah, I, I think Jeremy Corbyn would have been 10, would be in 10 Downing Street now. I would still be a Labour MP and we'd be in the process of implementing socialism at home and an ethical foreign policy abroad and, and having a government that is absolutely committed to the cause of the Palestinian people would be in office now and all of that has been squandered all of that has been lost because of the of a, of a, of a i don't know what it was i mean a failure of nerve i don't know why but i mean because there was overwhelming support for it from the grassroots for those democratic reforms i mean you know that was the beginning of the end of the corbyn project yes. the anti-semitism smears ramped up after that you know and um, the rest is history and uh, that's why i think we need to start again i mean others may take a different view but i just can't see there's any future for the labor party 
I regret to say that. I mean, I gave 44 years of my life, Nico, to the Labour Party. It can't be, it can't be easy. It can't be an easy thing to say for you, Chris. Uh, Jamil, you want to go on next one? Sure. This one is from Kathy. The question is, none of this would have worked without a hostile press. What to do about the press? Well, that's another reason, just quickly, why I think um, Jeremy was targeted, because he was very committed to implementing the, uh, the Leveson inquiry recommendations, Leveson 1 is so-called, uh, and also Leveson 2 to embark upon that. And he also gave a, a really important speech at the Edinburgh Festival, I think it was in 2018, where he talks about democratising the media, uh, breaking up the big, uh, you know, uh, media uh, uh, conglomerates, which are, you know, owned by sort of tax side billionaires who exert a huge amount of power. And he, and he wanted to sort of democratise that, democratise the, the BBC. He talked about creating local um, journalistic sort of collective cooperatives to do investigative journalism at a local level and so on. It's, it, it was a really important speech. And that was yet another reason why, you know, he was yeah. deemed as persona non grata. And, you know, we did we did a panel uh, a few weeks ago with John Pilger and uh, Ray McGovern and Roger Waters about uh, about Julian Assange and why the press is not standing. Yes, exactly. The journalists would stand up would be the first That's one. That's right. I mean, yeah. it, what it proves and what this has shown over the last five years is that the Guardian is as much as part of the corporate media as the Daily Mail and the yeah. Daily Express and the Times and so on. It, it's been abysmal. And of Guardian course, over Julian Assange, I mean, uh, was it five filters have reproduced 44 hostile articles uh, dating, but, and that's 18 months ago. I mean, absolutely abysmal and atrocious and despicable. You know, here's a guy who was in prison for revealing war crimes. You know, yeah. I mean, what, what greater injustice can there be? And yet the British press, with two or three notable exceptions, people like Peter Oborn, a Tory journalist, yeah. uh, Hitchens, Peter Hitchens, another Tory journalist, and uh, who is it, Patrick Coburn of the Independent. They're the only three journalists who've actually mm -hmm. stood out. It's been absolutely atrocious. Uh, and then they talk about freedom of the press. So I think we need to establish a labour movement press. I mean, we have the Morning Star, but we need a, really something that's bigger circulation. Uh, than it and it's maybe wider politically but that's well, well I'm, I'm, I'm working with some people I mean as you know Tony just in terms of our uh, grassroots movement and uh, the, the, there is uh, now an effort to to launch a new uh, uh, Sunday newspaper which I think is, is called The Word uh, that will be uh, I think in January that's the plan uh, to try and supplement you know mm. the Morning Star which is the only daily newspaper we've got which never gets any newspaper reviews on the BBC that's paper right. review uh, the sky you know it's, i mean it's a daily paper why i mean this is just clear uh, uh discrimination it, it, it's clear political bias that they're not yeah. actually giving them a i mean i think that would help in terms of their circulation but i think what we need to do miko is is more of these types of things that you're hosting this evening um and um you know we've got our own resistance uh, youtube broadcast channel we've got outlets like obviously the fantastic electronic intifada that uh, that Asa uh, writes for and uh, the Canary. So, so there are these alternative platforms that are springing up and I think we need to promote them as much as we can. 
and, and I think particularly with the younger generation, and people are increasingly turning away from the corporate media and looking for alternative mm. um, sources of, of information. And, well, they've and made it's really a duty of do that. And that's where I think what the trade unions ought to be doing. I mean, you know, there was an attempt, I think, in the 1980s to, to, uh, to create an alternative paper. And I think the that's trade right. unions were involved in that. But the, the, what's it called? The News on Sunday, I believe. Yes. But yes. That's the Why aren't the trade unions? The trade unions should be doing this because they are being, as we know, absolutely demonized and, and pilloried in, 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 the, in the disgusting corporate gutter media. Uh, and uh, Tony's right. We, we need to, to find a way of, of uh, uh, you know, building an alternative to that. And that's beginning to start. But I mean, you know, the trade unions could make a really big contribution to that. And in fact, actually, it'd be a better use of their resources than continuing to fund a political party, the Labour Party, that essentially doesn't speak for the organised working class in this country. It speaks for corporate capitalism. That's what it does. It, it, you know, it is a defender of the neoliberal status quo. And yes, if support, we're serious support, about challenging yeah. that, then then you know the trade unions need to step up. I think most of the uh, many of their active members, anyway, their grassroots members would, would probably agree with that. It's just that unfortunately the leadership, uh, you know, in these institutions often doesn't necessarily reflect the you know the views of their active uh, membership base. Hey, so what are you yes. saying? Is that, well, so support you're... independent journalism. Support that. Don't subscribe to the Guardian. Don't fund the Guardian. Don't fund Owen Jones. No, um, absolutely no. Uh, give give money to the Electronic Intifada, um, you know, subscribe to the Morning Star, the Canary, you know, these these um, support media that supports us, you know, instead of um, yeah, you know, giving a, giving money away to the Guardian, which mm. is just doing its best to sabotage us. And when that works well, Acer, I think whether you would agree, I mean, in the 2017 election campaign, as we know, the corporate media was lined up against us and everybody was kind of, you know, they were all predicting disaster and Corbyn was a, you know, a terrible individual who was going to lead Labour to catastrophe. And, you know, thanks to that kind of alternative media, those alternative media platforms, thanks to the kind of, you know, social media uh, platforms. And, and when, when this was when Momentum was working properly, as it were, and focused instead of, you know, becoming the useful idiot for the Zionists to lobby as it did. Uh, we were able to mobilise in you know, millions of people. So it can be done. Uh, it just needs... You know, yeah, the, the, the CST, Community Security Trust, uh, a very uh, a, a Zionist lobby group, essentially, um, a, you know, an Israel lobby group, um, which uh, it, it put out a report, you know, attacking me, but it did... Uh, and uh, and others and activists within left wing activists within the Labour Party um, for ridiculous things like they said that um, uh, using the hashtag sack Tom Watson was a <laughs> was evidence of anti semitism totally That's ridiculous wrong. you know the the form then the who was Tom Watson who was then the uh, uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party who spent all his time attacking Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and saying Corbyn was, you know, implying Corbyn was anti-Semitic and so so on and so forth. Um, well, it's absurd. It gets to an absurd level. I mean, I was accused. I was on the Andrew Neil um, radio program the other day uh, about the aftermath of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report. And just before I was interviewed, Margaret Hodge was on there, and I, before I answered the first question that he put to me, said that uh, let me just deal with some of the comments that your previous uh, guest. Um, uh, spoke about there uh, because it sounds to me I don't know where you was interviewing or where, where she was where, where you were interviewing but it sounds to me 
that she was uh, residing on planet Zog. That I was accused of uh, that apparently referring to somebody as residing on planet Zog is, is apparently an, an anti-Semitic um, reference. Zionist occupied government, that's why. It's the same acronym, but it's obviously a different yes. phenomenon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's go on to the next question. The it gets to, though, you know. It is, yeah. Um, but just to, fin just to finish my point about um, the CST, um, they stated that um, in that report... Based from last year, they stated that, um, you know, in the attack on me, they stated that I had achieved narrative dominance, that the electronic intifada had achieved narrative dominance online. So they, um, you know, they they are clearly afraid of alternative media and for of, of the, course the, they the, are. The, yes. What does that mean? Uh, 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 what does that even mean? Uh, they, were say, they were saying they were saying that on on the issue of. Labour Party, the Israel slash Palestine, as they put it, um, and of Labour anti-Semitism, the Electronic Intifada had achieved narrative dominance online. So that they 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 were basically saying that um, they were basically complaining that if you went online and you went on um, social media and you people were passing around Electronic Intifada articles, not Guardian articles, uh, and that you know they were reading. Um, you know, they were, they were getting a, an alternative take where, where we were saying, oh, look, this is a smear campaign, essentially, and they weren't getting... So, like, the, the, the image that's out there... I think we... Yes, mainstream media has a lot of power, but we underestimate our own power sometimes. Yeah. No, I think that's a good, then that's a good thing, then, if, if they're trying yeah. to get any kind of narrative dominance on, on these issues, that's a good thing. Go ahead, Jimmy. Let's see if we can squeeze in one last, uh, one last question. Before we let everybody go. Sure. This one is from John. The question is, do you think Jeremy has a legitimate case to, to sue Starmer and the party for a suspension or a possible expulsion? Oh, boy. There's a loaded question. Let's go around. We'll go Tony, Asa, and then Chris. You give us the final world. Go ahead, Tony. What do you think? Well, I, I'm not sure what he would sue him for, apart from defamation. I've just lost a case against the campaign against anti-Semitism. It's which is quite interesting because uh, there are two defences in libel. Either what you said is true or what you said was an honest opinion. Uh, and when it came to it, they didn't want to have to defend what was they said was true. So they said, well, it's our honest opinion. It doesn't matter if it's true. And that's reality of all these accusations. There's no substance uh, behind them. I think the thing about Starmer is he came in to the leadership determined to drive the left out of the leadership. Three months ago, Canary and others reported that, and it was a leak from Starmer's office, that Corbyn would be suspended when the HRC report was issued. I have no doubt at all that if Corbyn had said nothing, he would still have been suspended. The fact that he made a statement was just a pretext. Uh, I mean, that's what he wants, to eradicate all traces of what they, they call Corbynism. Uh, and people have to see Starmer is the main enemy. He's, he's been useless against Boris Johnson's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, he said nothing about the privatisation of track and trace systems, anything to do with the social questions, which are the bread and butter issues for working class people. He has nothing to say. He is a bipartisan approach. You know, he, he supports Johnson uh, in, the, in the national interest, whatever that is. Uh, so, I mean, Starmer, is the person we have to target. He is a Zionist. He said it to the Times of Israel. I'm an unqualified, 
I'm a Zionist without qualification. So we I should support take Zionism without qualification. That's right. That's yes. Good. I mean, it, it, there's no doubt where he stands. And unfortunately, the campaign group have these illusions. You can somehow unite with him. It's an absurdity. It's like exactly. uniting with a wild animal. It's about to tear you to pieces. You can't yes. do it. Exactly. You know, there's a question here. I got to throw it in there just because I think it's a really good question uh, in the Q&A uh, window here. I'll combine it because it's two, it's two questions that I think are really good and, and, and they apply, I think, across the board, certainly in the UK, but in the US and beyond. Um, do you think that topics like Islamophobia will ever be treated like anti-Semitism in the UK? Uh, or is it a privilege that only Zionists lobby get to acquire? And do you think that British politics in general, and I think this applies to US and and, and as well, uh, do you think there'll be a, a day where politicians and the media will actually differentiate between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And basically, I would add to that, realize that anti-Zionism is anti-racism. Do you see that happening in, in, any, in, any, in any way, shape or form, either in the UK or here in, or, or, or in the US? What do you think, Asa? Um. Yes, but not for a long time. I think. Well, I don't know. I don't want to be too. What would it would take for that to happen? It would take a big cultural shift, cultural and political shift. Really, I mean, things have been really set back by this. Yeah. So um, the pendulum by, all the way at the end that now it might shift back so that we can see these things. You think? It, things can change really quickly. Yeah. You know? Things can change really quickly. Um, right now, it looks pretty much impossible, um, but you know things can. We're in unprecedented times in a lot of ways, so um, it's. Uh, I think things could change very quickly. You know, there, there's, there is a like. It's, this is why it's so frustrating because there's, there's a mass base um, of Labour Party members sort of waiting to be led. So. Uh, it goes goes towards Chris's point earlier about um, you know people uh, there there's a big desire for change and not just among the um, activists but among um, you know ordinary people yeah. there's a big desire for change and um, as, as uh, for people's lives to improve but you know as well is opening up the the question of palestine and people are getting kind of a crash course in i've, I've got over the last years a, a crash course in political education of um what's the, the 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 dirtiness of the israel lobby i suppose in a lot of ways yeah. chris you've seen a lot of changes over the years things going in different directions do you think there's a you know, embracing the idea, number one, that Islamophobia is a problem and should be treated like anti-Semitism, and also that anti-Zionism is a form of, is a struggle against racism. Do you think this is something that in the UK... I mean, as a socialist, I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think to be a member of the Labour Party for as long as I was, you, you kind of um, you have to be a, an optimist. So, I mean, I think, uh, as Asa was saying, things can change quickly, and in my opinion, the the Zionist lobby has overplayed their hand. Um, you know, every, as we've already said, every, every concession that they've been given, they've wanted more. I mean, and now they're going for Jeremy Corbyn. And I just think, I mean, I was saying this anyway, I mean, several years ago, that many people have kind of sort of tuning out of the accusations. It's only the kind of chattering classes and the sort of, you know, people 
um, sort of close to the Labour Party, I think, who really kind of took this that, that seriously. Although having said that, of course, it, it was so intense. I think there was a perception whether people were that bothered about it, of course, remained. I mean, I'm not absolutely certain they were, but I think there was a perception that Labour was um, considerably more anti-Semitic as a party than, than the reality. I mean, the reality was, I mean, I had 44 years, I'd never met anybody who was anti-Semitic in the party. And I think even the, the figures that Jenny Formby produced demonstrated it was something in the order of 0.03% of, of, of people. And even then, I think it was more ignorance rather than necessarily malice. So the point that Ken Livingstone... Oh, what do you say? You ask people who are anti-Semitic. I mean, how would you even know? Well, indeed. I mean, Ken Livingston makes a point, you know, if, if you're if you're raging anti-Semite or racist or bigot, you know, why would you join the Labour Party? I mean, exactly. It just makes no, no sense at all. So, you know, so I think they've overplayed their hand. And I think what we need to do is hold our nerve, be strong, uh, be clear, speak the truth. Speak the truth as you were outlining, uh, Miko, in relation to the situation in, in Palestine and the abuse that the... Uh, Israeli regime is, is meeting out. Be clear about that. Be clear about what's happening. Stick, stick to your guns. Never apologize. I've made that mistake. Do not apologize for telling the truth. And I mean, in terms of uh, Jeremy's legal case, the, the original uh, question that you were asking us to, to, to answer, it, it, maybe not a, a legal case directly against Keir Starmer, but I think it could have a strong case against the party. I took the party on in the High Court when they suspended me and won. I took the EHRC on when they sought to name me and won. And I, in the aftermath of the High Court case against me, where I was awarded all of my costs against the Labour Party, 100% of them, uh, which we'd raised anyway through a crowdfunding exercise, was then used to create a left legal fighting fund. And we've been busily helping many activists uh, who have been smeared and framed uh, you know, by the Zionist lobby. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to do that. I mean, they're engaged in a process of lawfare and we're going to meet them with lawfare tactics as well. They apply a maximalist strategy. We, in turn, are applying a maximalist strategy in response. And I'm confident we'll win. We are not going to back down. Uh, the, the, the days of retreating, the days of capitulation are over. We have to stand strong and our solidarity is what will carry us through. Just remember the words of the uh, of the Percy Shelley poem, I would say to people, where he talked about the final verse of the Mask of Anarchy, to rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number, shake your chains to earth like dew, which in sleep have fallen on you, because ye are many and they are few. I mean, there's millions of people who, who support the program that you know we wanted to uh, uh, bring about. And, uh, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people, of, of, of activists who were inspired by that program that yeah. Jeremy Corbyn uh, put forward at that uh, time. So there are more of us than them. I mean, they might have lots of resources, you know, they may have powerful friends in, in the media and so on, as we know they have. And, you know, they can exert that and do exert that, 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 uh, that influence. And they have done over the years, I mean, against all the Labour administrations. But, I mean, if we stick together, we will defeat them. And I'm confident we are going to defeat them. So I'm optimistic. If we stand together and recognise the power of our collective solidarity, we are undefeatable. Yeah, I think I think that's a that, that's a great message, Chris. And your your optimism is something that I've been inspired by since since I've known you. And I just want to add to that that your quote and you talk about ending the capitulation reminds me of a quote by Hassan Kanafani, the Palestinian writer, who was assassinated by the Israelis in Beirut in 1972. 
he was asked about negotiating with Israel and he said, you don't really negotiating, you mean capitulation. Because negotiating with Zionists, negotiating with racists, negotiating with people who are coming to kill you is, is, is really capitulation. Um, so in that, in that spirit of optimism and, 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 uh, and standing up and standing firm, I think we should end this, uh, this wonderful uh, conversation. I want to thank you so much, Tony and Asa and Chris. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and see you. And, you, and everyone that's participating, we've had a solid, a solid, close to 300 people participating in, in over 300, over 300. So yeah, and so thank you all again, and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll see you soon. I hope. Take care. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.